Words for Granted is supported by Yabla, language immersion through authentic programming in the language you want to learn. Yabla features modern television, film, and original content by native speakers of Spanish, French, Italian, English, German, and Chinese. Yabla's premier language learning video platform enhances conversational understanding by utilizing custom playback, subtitles, flashcards, and learning games, such as Yabla's patented dictation game, Scribe. Stream authentic shows you enjoy and learn at the same time. Try Yabla risk-free for 15 days by going to yabla.com WFG. That's yabla.com WFG. Hi, everyone. I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. Today's episode is part three in a series on the evolution of English idioms. So let's get right to it. The idiom, apple of the eye, refers to something that one cherishes dearly, often one's own child. As I was brainstorming idioms to research for this series, the semantic opacity of apple of the eye jumped out at me as intriguing. By semantic opacity, what I mean is that if you're not a native English speaker that already knows the figurative meaning of apple of the eye, you can't logically deduce the expression's idiomatic meaning based on the words in the idiom alone. Its semantics, or its meaning, are opaque. When I decided that apple of the eye was an idiom whose origins I wanted to look into, I already knew that the phrase was popularized by the King James Bible. But that was all I knew. Before sitting down to do any research, I hypothesized that the idiom might have come from a lesser-known Bible passage in which a character chooses one particular apple out of a bunch. That apple that they really liked was the apple of their eye, hence the later development of the idiom to mean something cherished. However, this totally armchair hypothesis is wrong on three major counts. One, apples were not cultivated in the Middle East during biblical times, which, yes, also means that the distinctly European depiction of an apple in the Garden of Eden is anachronistic. Two, the idiom apple of the eye actually predates the King James Bible by about 800 years. And three, the origins of the idiom have absolutely nothing to do with actual apples. So let's get to the bottom of this. The idiom apple of the eye was originally an Old English idiom that dates all the way back to the 9th century. In Old English, the word apple was a generic word for all fruits that weren't berries. The written record attests compounds such as finger apples for dates, earth apples for cucumbers, and apple of paradise for bananas, the last of which is actually a Middle English construction. This broad usage of the word apple persisted in some varieties of English all the way up until the early modern period. Given the age of the idiom apple of the eye, we can be assured that it did not refer to apples as we know them. It did, however, originally refer to the eye. Not something perceived by the eye, such as something one cherishes, but literally to the eye itself. 
the original meaning of apple of the eye was pupil. Before the anatomical sense of the word pupil was borrowed into English from French in the early 1400s, this is the expression by which English speakers would have designated the central aperture of the eye, which raises the question, why the word apple? The answer has to do with how older civilizations understood, or misunderstood, the anatomy of the eye. The ancient Anglo-Saxons, those earliest speakers of Old English, believed that the pupil was a small object embedded within the iris, something solid but not hard like a stone, hence apple of the eye. Some sources claim that the original meaning of apple of the eye arose because both apples, in the modern sense, and pupils are round, but this doesn't take into account the broader sense of the word apple in Old English. The first appearance of Apple of the Eye in the written record appears in The Book of Pastoral Care, Alfred the Great's 9th century English translation of a Latin work entitled Regula Pastoralis. Although not exactly relevant to our story, it's worth mentioning that Alfred the Great's translation of this particular text is the oldest surviving complete book in English. The casualness with which Alfred the Great calls the pupil the apple of the eye suggests that his readers would have been familiar with the term, and by extension, that it's not a unique coinage of his own. While it might seem very antiquated to us, this anatomical sense of apple of the eye persisted all the way into the early modern English period. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, first published in 1595 or 1596, Shakespeare writes, quote, Flower of this purple dye, hit with Cupid's archery, sink in apple of his eye. When his love he doth espy, let her shine as gloriously as Venus of the sky. End quote. Reading this passage today, we might be inclined to interpret apple of the eye idiomatically, especially given its reference to Cupid, the god of love and desire. However, at this moment in Shakespeare's play, Robin Goodfellow is simply dropping juice from a magical flower into a sleeping man's eyes. The sense of apple of the eye used here is merely a more flowery designation of the eye itself. I want to take a moment to look at the etymology of pupil, the word that ultimately replaced the anatomical sense of apple of the eye. When we look at the usage of apple in the eye in the King James Bible in a few minutes, the etymology of pupil will become relevant. Pupil comes from the Latin word pupilla. In addition to meaning the pupil in our eye, pupilla also meant little girl or doll. Pupilla is the diminutive form of pupa, which simply meant girl. What's the basis of this connection? Well, a pupilla or doll, is a miniature model of a full human being, and if you look into someone's eyes, you can see a small image of yourself, something like a pupilla reflected in the pupil. This sense of pupilla, related to the eyeball, passed into French as pupille, and by the 15th century, into English as pupil. Knowing this etymology, it's not surprising that the pupils in our eyes are cognate with pupils in the classroom. Actually, they're more like double meanings of a single word. Pupils in the classroom are often young boys and girls, pupili and pupili, respectively, though today, 
pupil doesn't necessarily designate age. You could be a middle-aged pupil of a karate master, for example. While the etymological meaning behind pupil might seem quirky, a handful of words for pupil in other languages from around the world also follows a similar trend. In Greek, the anatomical word for pupil is kore, which is also the word for girl and doll. While Greek and Latin are indeed linguistic relatives on the Indo-European family tree, the words kore and pupil aren't directly related, even though they express literally the same things. In Hebrew, the phrase for pupil is ishaun ayin, literally, little man of the eye. Ishaun is the diminutive form of ish, which means man or mankind, while ayin is the word for eye. Like pupila and kore, the metaphorical logic behind the more explicit term ishaun ayin reflects pun intended, the objects of our gaze in our very own eyes. The phrase ishaun ayin appears four times in the original Hebrew of the Old Testament. However, the literal translation of the phrase little man of the eye has never appeared in any English version of the Bible. In a convention immortalized by the King James Version, published in 1611, Ishaun Ayin usually appears in English translations as apple of the eye. By the early 17th century, the phrase apple of the eye had been around in English for centuries, so it would have sounded more natural to contemporary readers of the Bible than the more literal translation, little man of the eye. Again, keep in mind that apple of the eye would have been known as an older, idiomatic way of referring to the pupil, not as an idiom for something cherished as we know it today. Though immortalized by the King James Bible, the English translation of Ishaun Ayin as apple of the eye actually first appears in the earlier Tyndale Bible, which the text of King James largely draws from. The King James Bible is the best-selling translation of the best-selling book of all time, and given that Apple of the Eye appears in it not once but five times, it's no surprise that we're still using this very old idiom today, albeit with a different meaning. So how did that different meaning arise? Don't worry, we're getting there. You'll note that I said Apple of the Eye appears five times in the King James Bible, even though Ishaun Ayin appears in the original Hebrew only four times. And that's because there is one appearance of Apple of the Eye in the King James Version that doesn't come from Ishaun Ayin, but from the phrase Bavat Ayin. Bavat Ayin is another Hebrew phrase designating the pupil, but its etymological meaning is disputed. Some sources derive bavat from a root meaning child or baby, while others derive it from a root meaning door or gate. If the child or baby etymology is correct, the expression follows the same semantic logic as kore, pupila, and ishaun ayin, words that refer to miniature-sized reflections that appear in our pupils. However, our overall story doesn't change much regardless of which of these etymologies is correct, so I'm not going to dive any deeper into the matter. So, if Ishaun Ayin and Bavat Ayin were ways of referring to the pupil in Hebrew, when we read Apple of the Eye in English translations of the Bible, should we interpret it with the older anatomical sense? Yes, 
but also no. When English translations of the Bible use apple of the eye, generally they do suggest the modern sense of something precious or treasured, but reading it this way is kind of anachronistic. It's complicated, because the sense of something precious or treasured, which is the idiomatic meaning of apple of the eye known to us today, is kind of built into the etymology of ishaun ayan, and for that matter, into the word pupil itself. Presumably, what you gaze upon most is what you most cherish, and that most cherished object is what is reflected in your pupils. We lose the transparency of this metaphor in the English idiom, apple of the eye, because, one, the basis of the idiom doesn't derive from looking at apples, or for that matter, looking at anything at all, and two, even if it did, apples just aren't that precious. Consider Deuteronomy 32.10, in which God guides Jacob through the desert. Quote, He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness, he led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. End quote. In a spiritual extension of the little man of the eye metaphor, we can imagine here the eyes of God looking down upon his cherished people, all of whom are reflected as tiny men in his eyes. Similarly, we have Proverbs 7.2. Quote, Keep my commandments and live, and my law as the apple of thine eye. End quote. Drawing on the meaning of the actual Hebrew, here God is asking his people to keep his commandments as precious and cherished as, again, the little man of our eyes, or whatever the thing we gaze upon most fondly might be. Idioms derive their universal meanings from prototypical scenarios. In my presentation of the Hebrew idiom, little man of the eye, the universal scenario is cherishing something, and the prototypical scenario is cherishing the person or thing reflected in your pupil. However, there's another interpretation for the prototypical scenario behind the idiom. This interpretation focuses less on cherishing an object or person that is beheld, but rather on the faculty of eyesight itself. In the pre-modern world before modern optometry, good eyesight was a real bodily asset to be cherished. The eye is also a delicate organ, making it precious. I think this is a totally legitimate interpretation, and it's feasible, perhaps even likely, that the biblical metaphors using Ishan Ayan and Bavat Ayan drew on this alternative interpretation as well. Psalm 17.8 reads, quote, Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. End quote. In a sermon on Psalm 17, 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon poetically elaborates on the preciousness of the eye. Quote, no part of the body is more precious, more tender, and more carefully guarded than the eye. And of the eye, no portion more peculiarly to be protected than the central apple, the pupil, or as the Hebrew calls it, the daughter of the eye. The all-wise creator has placed the eye in a well-protected position. It stands surrounded by projecting bones like Jerusalem encircled by mountains. Moreover, its great author has surrounded it with many tunics of inward covering, besides the hedge of the eyebrows, the curtain of the eyelids, and the fence of the eyelashes. 
And in addition to this, he has given to every man so high a value for his eyes, and so quick an apprehension of danger, that no member of the body is more faithfully cared for than the organ of sight. End quote. Actually, the New Testament itself seems to echo this sentiment. In Luke 11.34, Jesus says, quote, The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. When your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. End quote. We're all familiar with the idea of things getting lost in translation. Poetic nuances, double meanings, and, yes, idioms often lose much of their potency when translated from their native language into another language. However, in the case of translating Ishan Ayan and Bavat Ayan into English as the similar but not identical idiom apple of the eye, apple of the eye actually gained something in translation. Before the widespread publication of the King James Bible, we don't see examples of the modern idiomatic sense of apple of the eye in the written record. Now, it's possible that the modern idiomatic sense of apple of the eye emerged before the King James Bible, especially considering the preciousness of good eyesight in pre-modern times. Regardless of what language you speak, good eyesight is precious, and it's possible that English speakers drew on that prototypical scenario to transform apple of the eye from an idiom referring strictly to the pupil into a term for anything precious or treasured. But without any evidence in the written record documenting this, it seems to me that we have the King James Bible to thank for the preservation of this idiom and the development of its modern sense. In 1816, over two centuries after the publication of the King James Version, the Scottish writer Sir Walter Scott published a popular novel entitled Old Mortality, which contains the line, quote, Poor Richard was to me, as an eldest son, the apple of my eye. End quote. As far as the written record attests, this is the next significant usage of apple of my eye in reference to something cherished after the King James Bible. Clearly, Scott is drawing on the sense of the idiom established in the Bible, but his usage is differentiated by the fact that its meaning was not unintentionally acquired through translation. After the publication of Old Mortality, the frequency of this new idiomatic sense of apple of the eye begins to increase, and it's an idiom still familiar to English speakers today. As an epilogue, I'd just like to say that I'm really fascinated by the notion of words or phrases gaining semantic complexity in translation as opposed to losing semantic complexity. Even if English speakers were using apple of the eye in the modern idiomatic sense outside of the written record, it's undeniable that the English translations of the Hebrew Ishan Ayan and Bavat Ayan reinforced and preserved this sense in the long term. If you know of any other words or phrases that experienced similar developments, send me an email at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. I'd love to chat about them and share them on the show. Right. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're a regular listener and you want to help keep this boat afloat, you can make a monthly contribution at patreon.com slash words for granted. You can also make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash words for granted. I also encourage you to leave a rating and review on whatever podcast player you use because those really help the show grow and give me feedback about what I can do to make the show better. 
I'm on Twitter at, at WordsForGranted and Facebook as WordsForGranted. And you can email me directly with questions, comments, and concerns at WordsForGranted at gmail.com. All right. Have a great day. I'll talk to you soon. 